Jesus is enough. Welcome to Grace Walk Radio. I am your host, Derek Lewandowski, and I'm here with my friend, my brother, my co-laborer in Christ, and gospel hammer, Caleb Berg. Howdy. (laughs) Well, it's true. (laughs) Every week, it's something different. Yeah, and every week, it's... (laughs) pretty spontaneous like I, you know in in my old you know like charismatic days i probably would have blamed the holy spirit for that like i just, <laughs> I just came up with that god just god just god just told to me. me what you are you're a gospel <laughs> hammer all right and if i was still in my charismatic pentecostal days maybe i would have taken that and turned that into like some new gift ministry like Hammer ministry. And, I, I don't know what that would be, but <laughs> start a hammer conference. Yeah, or hammer time. And like you could use <laughs> hammer time. You could use MC Hammer's <laughs> old song as like your theme song well, for you to walk up and preach. And if we were on, you know, I don't know what that old TV network. If it's still around, TBN, we would have had MC Hammer host the program. Hey, he could have been your MC. <laughs> yeah, he would have come out. W- to the hammer time thing, and then he would introduce you, yeah. and you would go out there and just be a gospel hammer. And, or, or something. And break down those strongholds and those fortresses. This has really gotten off the rails. <laughs> anyway, this program is brought to you by the Hammer Time Conference, which will be held <laughs> August... <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> we'll see you there. But actually, this program is brought to you by That Vacation Company. For all your vacation needs, please check out on Twitter or Instagram at That Vacation Co. or check out their podcast. Yes. Some great stuff, great opportunities to travel the world, and they can help you do it. Okay, so today we are back in the book of Galatians, and we are in Galatians 3.15, and uh, let's just read down to verse 22. Paul writes, to give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave to Abraham, gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Wow. Uh, Paul is very educated (laughs) and smart. Um, And aren't you glad that God raised up a guy like this? You know, to have a really academic understanding of the gospel, to help break down and analyze even some of these Old Testament narratives and texts, um, and to help us understand the gospel and the covenant of grace in light of all those things. I'm very grateful um, for that. So, you know, th- this text, I think, you know, helps us see a couple things. Number one, that salvation has always been 
by grace. You know, the law came, he's saying, 430 years after Abraham. Uh, and the, the, the giving of the law to Moses did not annul a previous covenant that God had already established with Abraham. And that was a covenant of grace. And this is something Paul's already talked about in this, in this letter to the Galatians. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So God, in the giving of the law to Moses, didn't go, Oh, well, I'm going to change it now. It was salvation by grace through faith. It was salvation by trusting, you know, as Abraham did, uh, believing God, believing in God's mercy, believing in God's grace, believing that God would send someone to save him and rescue him out of his spiritual poverty. No, now it's on you. Paul's saying, God didn't do that. The giving of the law didn't annul a previous agreement that God had. And he's saying it's the same. It's still salvation by promise, not by performance. That's what he says in verse um, 18. He says, if the inheritance comes by law, it's no longer, it no longer comes by promise. That tells us that our salvation is by promise. And if you believe in a salvation by performance, you do not believe the gospel that Paul preached, and you do not believe the gospel that, that Abraham believed. And so that's the first thing that it teaches here is that it's always been by grace. Uh, the second thing is that, you know, I've already said it, that the law didn't nullify the original covenant of grace. And the third thing, which I think is, is really helpful in understanding the gospel law distinction, is this text. I think Paul is, is really helping us understand the law's purpose, and that is to show us our need of Christ. Look at verse 19 again, or listen to it at least. It says, why the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been, had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Don't ask me to exegete the angels. What is that? Angels by an <laughs> intermediary. Uh, but, but I will talk about the main point Paul is making there, that uh, the law came uh, so that we could see that we would come to the one to whom the promise had been made. And he previously said that that promise had been made to one, yeah. to offspring, which is Christ. And so the, ministry, the law has a ministry. And it's not, it's not a ministry of uh, instruction for how to save yourself. It's a ministry that points us to our need of Christ. Yeah. And Paul is emphatic in this text about that. Yeah, and you can make the point there, too, I think, that it's also not an instruction necessarily for how to live. Like, sure, there's wisdom. We've talked about the three uses of law. So there's wisdom um, in that, you know, like the the Ten Commandments add wisdom in how we should live. Like, yeah, it's going to go really badly for you if you murder someone. Um, but that aside, it's not for how to live for God. It's not instruction like, if you don't murder someone, that's how you live for God. Because Jesus brings that to a whole new level in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, well, if you've been angry in your heart at somebody, mm-hmm. you've committed murder. So you can't walk away, I think, from the giving of the law and say, like, yeah, as a new covenant believer, I'm supposed to live under the law because that's how I live for Christ. That's not what the law's purpose was. Yeah. Um, who was it? D.L. Moody said, the law was not given to commend us, but to measure us. Yeah. You know, at no point are we supposed to look at the law, and by the way, any part of the law, are we supposed to look at it as a measuring stick and go, I'm doing pretty good there? And, and then we'll go, well, maybe on this part of it I'm not doing well, but I'm doing well on this part. And to your point with the Sermon on the Mount, I think what Jesus taught 
you know, in, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount was that the law and the, its implications and its demands actually go much, much deeper than the external. Yeah. Where in the Old Testament, that's what Jesus is saying. He goes, you have heard it said, and he's referring mm-hmm. to the Old Covenant, uh, the Old Testament. Uh, he said, uh, you have heard that it was said, you know, thou shalt not kill. But I say to you. So what he's saying is that command actually goes far deeper. You know, if you, if you say to your brother, you fool, you know, if you, if you have unrighteous anger and, and lash out at your brother in anger, lose your temper, yeah. you're just as guilty as the guy who stuck a knife in a guy's heart. Yeah. Um, and that's what Jesus is saying. So we're, we're not supposed to go, well, I haven't killed anybody, so I'm doing good there. But over here, if you look at the implications of each law, you will find that you have actually, before God, broken every single law in the Ten Commandments. So you're right, Caleb. We're not supposed to go, uh, well, now I'm going to keep the law to live a life that pleases God. Yet, Yes, holiness does please God. And the spirit of the law is fulfilled in Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit. That's why Paul said later on in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. And how does he finish that, that statement? Against such things, there is no law. Against such things, there is no law. Why would he say that? He's pointing out, you are not under law, but if you have faith in Christ and you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you will accidentally fulfill the things the law requires because God produces God inside of you. And you will, if you fulfill the, the law Christ did give, which is the law of love, you will fulfill the demands of the law without being under it. I think if you drop down to verse 21 here, I think we see that when Paul says, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed come by the law, or would indeed be by the law. Mm. Um, You know, because what we're saying about whether it's like, you know, through the Spirit or however we're wording that, and, and the idea of like somehow I could live by these works of the law, um, it's almost like we're saying... Uh, that the law could give life, but the life the the law does not produce the spirit does not to use a phrase you used this morning in our staff meeting it doesn't produce the works of the spirit right uh only grace produces the works of the spirit cause and effect you know what you're talking about the fruit of the spirit works of the spirit, however you want to word that is produced by by being in christ it's produced by believing the gospel the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, his spirit living in you and producing those things in you, just like, you know, I mean, you used the example this week of trying to tape fruit to your chest. doesn't make you an apple tree. But when I drive by, uh, you know, there's a a tree, uh, well, uh, a couple trees that are fruit-bearing trees. I don't think they're apples. But when I drive by those fruit-bearing trees, you know, it's not that the farmer went out and, like, tried to force that tree to grow that fruit. He didn't try to like staple some fruit to the branches and and just hope that one day they would take. Rather, he just planted those trees. And yes, there is watering and and that kind of thing that goes into it. But um, the the tree is producing that fruit. It's a natural byproduct of it being a tree. An apple tree produces apples. An orange tree produces oranges. the law does not produce the works of the Spirit. It can't. 
but the Spirit can produce the works of the Spirit. Yeah, and Jesus said a bad tree cannot produce good fruit, and a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. So yeah. he's not saying, be a good tree. He's saying, if you are in me, yeah. you are a good tree, and you will bear good fruit. And, you know, this morning in our staff meeting, we talked about, like, the mic drop, mm-hmm. that I think sometimes that those who have dissenting views of grace or think they're the great balancers, they'll bring in the book of James, you know? So you say, you know, you post on Twitter or Facebook, <laughs> Thank God, I'm so grateful that we're saved by grace through faith. That's where freedom is. That's where joy is. That's where life is. Inevitably, you're going to get the, you know, the one grand balancer swooping into, to, you know, like Wyatt Earp to rescue everyone reading the thread. And they'll go, faith without works is dead. Mic drop. Boom. I'm I got you. Right? And, and you're just like, oh, my gosh. How many times? <laughs> Here's, here's what we, we need to understand. Paul and James were in agreement. Yeah. Okay? We believe that because we believe in the canon of Scripture, and we believe as we take all of Scripture together and, and, and take the whole counsel of Scripture that we see that the Spirit and the Word agree. So if James, the book of James, this apostle of Christ, is in the canon of Scripture and, and was inspired by God, that means it is consistent with grace. So what I'm saying is the works that James is talking about are not the works of the law, that, you know, Wyatt Earp is suggesting that <laughs> needs to balance us. Well, you guys need a little law to balance your faith. Mm-hmm. No, it's not the works of the law. It's what you already referenced. It's the works of the Spirit. So yeah. James is not contradicting Paul. He's not saying we need more works of the law. He is saying faith without the works of the Spirit is dead. And, you know, we, we were listening to a teacher today about he, he made the point that Really, James was speaking in, in reverse, you know? Not just faith without works is dead, but works without faith yeah. are dead. And that the works that are produced by God are those works of the Spirit, those fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So if you take Galatians 5, you can put it right over that thing that James is saying yeah. uh, when he's talking about works being the, the fruit of faith. They don't contradict each other. Yeah. We don't have to pit works against uh, faith if you understand the works of the Spirit, not the works of the law. We are not looking at the law and going, okay, yeah, this is, this is a way that we save ourselves. This is a way that we prove that our faith is authentic. Because if you, if, if you are going to say that to me, then my question for you is going to be, which laws and how many yeah. works are enough? Yeah. And that, that is the damnable question of every legalist mm-hmm. because there's no answer. And there's never enough, you know, because if one hour of prayer is good, two hours is better. If two hours is good, three hours is better. Mm-hmm. You know, like it literally never ends. And I had those those arguments in my own head, you know, as I was struggling with these things as a teenager. Like I kind of shared that testimony with Airborne, our youth group, this uh, two weeks ago. And I was like, man, like I, I could never find the measure, you know, because – I had voices, you know, good popular teachers who were out there saying like, you know, in the in the circle I was in at that time, it would have been charismatic Pentecostals, but like saying, you know, like, could you not tarry one hour? Mm-hmm. You know, like, that was my best impression of a Pentecostal <laughs> voice, by the way. Um, but like, you know, fasting, you know, like, well, if one day of fasting is good, why not 21 mm-hmm. days or 40? Right. You know, because that's when you're at that elite level. Oh, yeah. You know, so... All that to say, like, none of those things, those are dead works. Like, those are the things that aren't going to to help anyone. Um, and in fact, I think they cause damage. 
But the works of the Spirit, which we've seen in the book of Galatians, at Grace Life we've seen in the book of Ephesians, um, and I recently taught through the book of James in my group, actually, a year ago, because it was during COVID, during our shutdown. Was that like eight years ago? It was like eight years ago. <laughs> like, I, I think Gerald Ford was president, <laughs> <laughs> even though that was not eight Gerald years ago. Ford. <laughs> I don't know why I went there. Maybe it's people falling down the stairs or falling <laughs> up the stairs. I don't know. No. Um, anyways, I'll leave that alone. Um, but there's actually a harmony there as to what these works of the Spirit are. And it's seen in loving God and loving people. And I, I really am just convinced that the growth that we see in, in our Christian life and our Christian um, discipleship is that love growing. You know, it's not so much about progress checking which I would define as pietism, a hyper inward focus mm. on myself to see if I'm a quote unquote, you can't see my fingers, but quote unquote, better Christian today than I was yesterday. But what is growing inside of me as the fruit of the spirit, which we see in Galatians five, um, I believe we also see a version of it in Ephesians four, verse two. Um, and really, I think we see a version of it though, maybe not quite as defined in the book of James um, is is my love towards my brothers and sisters in Christ, and and that is that is so much more important than um, the spiritual disciplines that we harp on so often in the church. Yeah, and you know, to go back to uh, the idea of people being deceived into thinking that if they could just come under law, and you see this a lot in parenting, you know, like Christian parenting, you know, like the the whole. Uh, this, this is uh, potentially like self-accusing here because we homeschooled for a long time. But you see it in the homeschool movement. If you just shelter your kids and keep them away from the bad stuff, keep them away from big bad culture, they're going to be okay. Not necessarily, right? Yeah. I mean, your kids in a Christian home, homeschool, you know, well-ordered home have sin natures that are just as vile and corrupt and dangerous as yeah. kids who grow up not in Christian homes. So... Romans 7 says, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived. I think that's talking about a, a believer. I think yeah. that's Paul yeah. talking about himself. I've heard the argument, well, that's, that's talking about before the person got saved. No, because he says, I was alive. I was spiritually alive apart from the law. That means he got saved by grace. And he says, when the commandment came, sin revived. In other words, when I brought myself back under law in my sanctification and in, in my walk with God, he said, sin revived. In other words, it was, it was dead, but sin actually revived. And, you know, we call this the revival you don't want. Hmm. You know, we all want revival. Lord, give me revival. You don't want this revival. Yeah. Bringing yourself under law, which... Ironically and strangely, a lot of people who are interested and, and obsessed with revival actually get the wrong kind of revival. Yeah. We're going to fast and pray and, until revival comes. And, you know, it's oftentimes it's, it's Christless and it's just the works of the law to try to, like, twist God's arm or hit the pinata in a way where you get the candy. Yeah. And uh, I'm not saying we shouldn't fast or pray for revival, okay? But, I'm, but I am saying that if it's, if it's not in view of Christ and his finished work— um, it oftentimes can become our gospel, and can yeah. and the works can produce death, not life. When, when the commandment came, sin revived. Like it actually stimulates the sin nature, it makes you more aware um, of 
your your temptations and your your sinful desires and and your on both sides religious sins and irreligious sins uh, whether it's self righteousness and pride or whether it's rebellion and and um, you know appetite driven sensuality so yeah bringing ourselves under law th- those works of the law not the works of the spirit but bringing ourselves under the works of the law it, it does not produce it does not produce life at all yeah and you know I, I can't help but think like as you're talking about the the revival that you don't want the, you know we're two guys who talk a lot about our hope and desire to see revival and an awakening but i think our passion is for a revival and an awakening of gospel preaching gospel believing people mm-hmm. you know like nothing stirs my heart more than when i'm in a gospel gathering and so what i mean by that is a gathering where people are talking about the gospel and my heart is literally like on fire as i'm hearing about this great salvation that Jesus has done. If you start getting into what I need to add to it, that just brings condemnation and death. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as as I'm in a church where the gospel is presented week in and week out and in group where we're talking about the gospel all the time, I feel like I'm living in the middle of revival. Mm. You know, so I, I have a hunger and thirst for people to catch that experience you know it is an experience but it's belief i wrote a blog a few years ago called the quiet revival and the whole idea was the revival that i prayed for for years and didn't obtain through my works i actually experienced a renewal when i rested yeah in christ and i began to grasp the new birth and gospel-centered doctrine um i got a revival but it wasn't as flamboyant and outwardly hmm. fantastic, I think, as, um, you know, those that I walked with for years, including myself, yeah. um, would have thought it looked like. But I do think there's a quiet revival happening right now, and even in our, in our country and around the world. Of, there's, there really is a fresh, you know, gospel-centered movement where people are grasping uh, Christ in his word and grasping the finished work of Jesus on the cross and grasping what it means to be saved by grace through faith. Um, man, that when you, and when you see it, man, people get so excited about Jesus and so excited about the cross where when the cross starts looking incredible and, and electrifying and beautiful is when there's that equal revelation of the nature of sin and depravity. And did you find it? Yeah, it's on the Grace Life website. I'll oh, okay. post it in the show notes. Cool. Um, so, yeah, let me finish with this, too, on that note, because I think, I think this text speaks to the very thing we're talking about. It says, the last verse in the text we read, but the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Just, just pause right there. The Scripture imprisoned. What does that mean? I think he's talking about how the law um, creates this restlessness in a person to reach for salvation outside of themselves. You, you become a prisoner of your own sinful shortcomings and failures, and, and you begin to cry out for a Savior. So the, the, the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. In other words, the, the, the Scripture, speaking of the, the law in Scripture, exposes our need, exposes our sin, yeah. points to our need of Christ. And if you couple this verse with Galatians 5.1, put them together. 
The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Yeah. So there in Galatians 5.1, Paul talks about the freedom from that prison. The freedom, mm-hmm. and That freedom is not like, like I used to think and, and sing, you know, that... Like, be free from, you know, whatever, from your, your bondages and, and, and from your, your sins. Now, there is a freedom that the gospel offers from those things. But that, in context here, he is talking about freedom from being under law yeah. and the joy and freedom of being under grace. That's actually the freedom he's talking about, and that's where true freedom begins. Amen. You know, the use of the law, it'll crush you. You know, like, I, I'm, I'm actually not opposed to law preaching, as long as it's in the context it's supposed to be in, which right. is to crush us and to bring us to the point where we rest in Christ alone uh, for salvation. You know, I, I, there's that Charles Spurgeon quote uh, Cody Wilbanks shared recently, um, I kiss the wave mm. that uh, tosses me upon the rock of ages. Mm. And I, I, I think I mentioned this last week in our podcast or maybe the week before, but I've just really grown – as I've started to see the law in its proper place, I actually love the law mm. because of what its purpose when is. When it's used lawfully. When it's used, yeah, when it's used lawfully, when it's used right. Because, man, I have no other hope mm. save Christ alone. Mm-hmm. So the law reminds me of that often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I would go as far as to say I not only don't mind law, preaching the law and teaching the law in, in you know, in, in teaching the word, I think it's necessary. Yeah. Um, we have to use the law lawfully yeah. um, in order to point the way to Christ, you know, and it, it's that whole idea of, um, you know, 90% law, 10% grace uh, as far as content goes, because, you know, how, if I spend 45 minutes showing you and exposing, you know, let's say that you have some terrible disease, and we took this test, and look, and here's this test, and it's obvious you have this disease. How much do I have to preach medicine if I offered it to you and yeah. said, here's the cure? <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, it'd be pretty fast, right? <laughs> and so that, that's how we use the laws. That's how, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I mean, that's how the, the preachers and teachers of the Great Awakening used the law, was to expose our need of Christ so that we would run to him and reach for him. And so the idea of preaching, you know, uh, I'm a grace preacher, and I don't use the law to show our depravity and our, our sin and our need, um, that person is not a grace preacher. Yeah. You know, so um, we, the law is beautiful. It was given by God. It's holy, but we must use it lawfully yeah. and use its ministry to point people to our need of Christ. Well, we could obviously go on and on. This is a passion of ours. I'm sitting here with Hammer Time, Bird. Um, so, hammer's dropping. Thanks for listening today. And I think we'd summarize it all this way as we do every week. Please remember, Jesus is enough. <laughs>